Well, if you have your Bibles with you again this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you're a guest with us, we've been working through this book and we're coming to the end of our study in it. The last couple sections of chapter 3 and we're going to begin reading in verse 6 this morning. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1260. I'm going to speak for a few minutes this morning on this subject, the danger of the undisciplined. The danger of the undisciplined. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and we'll begin reading in verse 6, and this is the Word of God. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. In the 1840s, William Miller began preaching the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the end of the world, which he predicted would take place between March 21st, 1843, and March 21st, 1844. By using newsletters and posters, Miller spread his message to as many as 100,000 followers. Expecting Jesus to return at any moment, these Millerites sold their belongings and took to the mountains, waiting for the end of the world. When Jesus did not return on schedule, Miller changed the date and then explained his mistake by remodeling his theology, and out of that remodeling of theology grew the Seventh-day Adventist movement. Miller was mistaken not only about the timing of Christ's return, but also about the response that should be given to the imminent and soon-appearing return of Jesus Christ. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul responded to a false report that Jesus had already come and that the day of the Lord was upon them. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he begins to deal with the erroneous response to that false report. Like the Millerites, many of the Thessalonian Christians had stopped working and carrying on in their lives because they expected Jesus to return at any moment. And they were living off the generosity of the church. They had become lazy and they were becoming problem makers within the body itself. It's interesting, isn't it, in the context of 2 Thessalonians, 
that with all that this young church was dealing with, one of the greatest dangers it faced was not blatant attack from the outside, but the carelessness and the laziness of the people on the inside. There were undisciplined church members who were causing problems for the rest of the church. And what began as a minor problem that he addressed in his first letter to them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 has now escalated into a public sin. What Paul could deal with in a few words in 1 Thessalonians, he now requires a major confrontation. Of all that Paul has written in both of these letters to this young church, this is by far the most stern words he gives them as he deals with the issue of unruly living habits on the part of some of the members of this church. Now, it is obvious when you keep this passage in the context of the overall book that the Apostle Paul had to address this issue. And as theologian and commentator Gordon Fee observes, although Paul does not mention names, he leaves little to the imagination as who he is talking about as he writes these words that we just read. His words and his images are direct and to the point. And I would add, could you imagine as this letter was read publicly to the church, being one of those unruly, problem-causing church members in the midst of that congregation, hearing these words read about you. And so in this passage, Paul addresses the danger of living an undisciplined Christian life. Would you notice with me, first of all, in verse number six, Paul's command. He says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. You'll notice at the outset of this passage that there is a sense of urgency on the part of the Apostle Paul with these words. And you'll notice that right out of the gate in verse number 6, he uses the word command. And if you study the entirety of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 carefully, you will find that he uses this word command four times. He uses it in verse number 4. He uses it here in verse number 6. He uses it in verse number 10. And he uses it in verse number 12. And this word literally refers to a military order handed down from a superior officer. It has military language behind its emphasis. And so Paul's words here to the Thessalonians are strong. They are decisive. He does not issue a request. He does not give them words of encouragement. You'll notice in the text, he gives them a clear command with the authority of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ behind his command. And as a result, this was a command that this church was to obey instantaneously and unquestioningly. So what was the command? Well, do you see it there in verse number six? It's very simple, that you keep away 
from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. The command is a command to keep away. This phrase has a nautical meaning to it. It literally means to take in the sails or to draw in the sails on a boat. It is to avoid or hold oneself apart from something or someone. It is to abstain from fellowship with someone. It is to withhold fellowship from someone. The idea is to distance oneself and keep away from a sinning brother or sister in Christ. It is literally a command to practice church discipline. Now, if you were to go to Matthew chapter 18, you would find Jesus' instructions on church discipline. And what Jesus lays out in that passage, and what Paul refers to here, is the third step in that process of church discipline. In step one, Jesus says that you are to confront the sinning brother or sister privately, one-on-one. And if that doesn't work, you're to move to step two and confront them with two or three witnesses. And if that doesn't work, you are to move to step three. And in step three, you are to tell the offense to the congregation, and you are to separate the offender from the life of the church. And if those three steps do not work and the person persists in sin, Jesus says in step four, you are to remove them from the membership of the church and treat them as one who does not know Christ. Now notice carefully in the text in verse number six, Paul refers to these idlers as brothers. He does it in verse 6, and if you look on down in verse 15, he refers to them as brothers again. And so this command to keep away or to separate or to remove them from the fellowship of the church and the life of the church is not to remove them from membership and treat them as an unbeliever. It is to follow the third step of church discipline and by pushing them away, showing them the danger of their sin. It is really a step to get their attention. And by separating themselves from these persons, Paul is addressing, the church was expressing its disapproval in a manner that these who were involved in this public sin could not dismiss lightly. And the reason why Paul gives the church this instruction is so that this will get the attention of those who are in willful public sin and lead them to repentance and restoration in the body of the church. Paul is teaching this church, and he's teaching you and me, that it is important that willful and openly sinful behavior not be allowed to go unchecked in the church community as if everything were fine. Because Paul knew that such actions and attitudes could spread and poison the entire body of believers. And friends, 
If you don't have your Bible open, and if you're not reading what I'm teaching you in black and white for yourself, this is going to sound hard, it's going to sound harsh, and it's going to sound unbiblical to you because that's what the world thinks about what I'm teaching you. But as a church and as believers, you can't think like the world. You have to think biblically. And God defines how his church should be handled, not the world, not you, not me, his word. We submit to the authority of the word of God. And that is what Paul is telling this church to do. So what is the sin that Paul is addressing? Do you see it in your Bible in verse 6? It's the sin of idleness. He uses this word three times in this passage. Verse 6, verse 7, and verse 11. This word also has military language behind it, like the word command. And it is used to describe a soldier who has stepped out of line or is insubordinate to authority. Listen carefully to this definition, because it'll carry through with the rest of the sermon. To be idle is to be unruly. To be idle is to be without discipline in your life. Now, Paul had already addressed this sin in his first letter, in first. Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14. And this is what he said in that verse. And we urge you, brothers, he's speaking to the church. We urge you, church, to admonish, to correct, to instruct the idol. Now, what were these idlers, these without discipline, these unruly church members doing? Look at the text in verse 6. They were walking in their idleness. It literally means to live or behave in an undisciplined, unruly way. And it represents a pattern of life. This word walking is present tense. It emphasizes that there's persistence in this behavior. They were consistently, persistently walking in an undisciplined way of living. And in the context of Second Thessalonians, it means that there were believers in this church who were refusing to work. And they were living off of the church and other people's work. And they were continuously living a lazy, undisciplined life. And notice the context in which he places this sin of walking in idleness. Look at verse 6. And not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Paul previously spoke of Christian tradition in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15 when he referred to the doctrinal teaching that the church should embrace and hold on to. And here in this verse, he uses the same language to refer to the manner of living that should flow from your doctrine. And you remember a few weeks ago when we looked at that passage, I taught you that doctrine is for living and that what you, should, what you believe should affect how you live your life. 
And Paul is saying they're walking in this public manner of sin because they've moved away from the tradition of doctrine and what doctrine teaches and how that should inform how you live. Well, what doctrine was he talking about? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And listen, here's the doctrine. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. That is the doctrinal tradition that Paul is referring to. That you outdo yourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ in love. And that you aspire to live a quiet, godly, dignified life in the midst of a culture that is eroding. Sound similar? And that you mind your own affairs and that you work hard with your own hands so that you can live a life properly for those unbelievers that are all around you and so that you would be dependent on no one but be dependent upon God. This is the doctrinal teaching that you're to follow and live out. And you're not doing it. You're living in sin. Paul embraced this doctrinal tradition he instructed the Christians in Ephesus to walk this way. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And that's it, church. That's what he's teaching them. With urgency, walk in a manner that is worthy of how God called you into his salvation and into relationship with him for all the world to see. That is the tradition. That is the doctrine. That is the way you're to live your life. That's what he's teaching the church. And that's what he's teaching you and me. It's a manner of living in consistency with the word of God. It's a manner of living in a high calling of discipleship to Jesus Christ. The Christian life is not a life we live when it's convenient. It's not a life that we live when everyone else around us is living that same kind of life. It's not a life that we live when it doesn't cost us anything. The Christian life is a way of living that involves every single area of our lives, every single moment of our lives. It is a life that submits to and surrenders to the Word of God and to the Lordship of Jesus Christ over your life. And in spite of the teaching that Paul gave them while he lived among them, and in spite of the teaching that he gave them when he wrote 1 Thessalonians to them, some of these members of this church continued to live the way they always lived, unaffected by Paul's words to them. 
the idol were brothers and sisters in Christ who were living contrary to Paul's teaching. They were living contrary to Paul's example of hard work. And listen, they were disrupting the church. And so Paul tells the church, separate yourself. Keep away from those in public sin as a warning to them. But you say to me this morning, Pastor, why would he do that? That sounds so harsh. Well, how many times does he have to tell them? About as many times as you have to tell your children. He's told him and told him and told him, and they won't listen. So something has to change. And he tells them to keep away from the undisciplined because he knows the effects it'll have on the church. Listen, there are reasons why the church is to practice church discipline. Let me give you a couple of them. We can conclude through Jesus's teachings about church discipline that to associate with people who are living in public willful sin is displeasing to God. You say, oh, how can you say that? Because God tells us to separate from them. And so if you don't, you're disobeying God. Secondly, he tells us to do this because other Christians will be influenced and drawn into this kind of behavior. If the church says it's okay to live this way, other people will live this way. Number three. Willful public sin in the life of a Christian is a horrible example to the world of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And how many people have you tried to witness to in your life who've said, I'll never believe that because so-and-so claims to be a Christian and they live like this. And number four, if people are not living according to the word of God, not only are they departing from the faith, but they are likely to deliberately and intentionally lead others astray. And the purpose, the purpose, don't miss the purpose behind this. The purpose behind Paul's instructions to this church is to restore Restore and bring back into the fold those who have gone astray in their sin. Paul is teaching the church, if you really love them, real biblical love is not to ignore their sin. Real biblical love is to reach out to them and to confront them and to bring them back into the fold. You say, well... I certainly wouldn't lead the church like that. Well, it's not your church. It's Christ's church. And Christ says, this is how you're to deal with sin in the church. So do you know what verse 6 does, friends? It forces us to ask ourselves this morning and do an examination of our life. And see if there is a willful, persistent area of sin 
in our life where we are willfully and persistently walking in disobedience to God's word. Verse 6 demands that. When you're studying this verse, you have to lay yourself before the word of God and before the God of the word and say, God, am I willfully, persistently disobeying you in an area of my life? Do you know what else verse 6 does? Verse 6 forces you to ask yourself if there's a brother or sister in Christ whom you know who is living willfully and persistently in public sin and you need to go to them in love and rescue them. Verse 6 also makes us examine whether or not we might be like some of the Thessalonians. That we may have said to ourselves, it's obvious from the things that are going on in the world that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back soon. So why should I worry about anything? I'll just eat and drink and be merry until I die or until Jesus Christ comes back. And you're resting on your laurels. You may not be living in willful, persistent sin, but you're not certainly living for zeal for the Lord and for the things of his kingdom the way you used to. And verse 6 makes you ask yourself, is this really how I want to live when Jesus returns? Like, is this how I want the Lord Jesus Christ to find me when he comes back to rule and reign? Coasting. One foot in the world, one foot for him. Wavering back and forth. Trying to get along with the world and trying to live for God. Is that how you want Christ to find you when he returns? Verse 6 demands that kind of examination of all of us. When we not only see Paul's command, in verses 7 through 9, we see Paul's example. And in these verses, he reminds the Thessalonians that he led them by example when he was with them, and he lived out before them what God requires. In verse 7, he talked about his walk. He says, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because you were not idle when we were with you. This is an extremely strong statement on the part of the Apostle Paul concerning the importance of the Christian life. Do you see what he says? You yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. The word imitate is where we get our English word mime. And he says to this church, church, the way I live before you, you know how you ought to mime me. You know how you ought to walk because you've seen the way that I walk. It's what Hebrews 13, 7 says. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate, mime their faith. That's what the church was to do. And when you study Paul's life, Paul was an example to the Thessalonians of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. He was a model of gospel preaching. He was a model of enduring suffering. He was a model of honesty and integrity. He was a model of humility. He was a model of gentleness. He was a model of affection. He was a model of self-sacrifice. He was a model of holiness, and he was a model of prayer. And he says to the church, mind me. This is how you're to walk. In verse 8, he talked about his work 
He says, nor did we eat anyone's bread without pain for with toil and hard labor. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. He toiled and he labored at the work of his hands. It, it describes strenuous, difficult, manual labor. And Paul is saying with exhausting labor, we lived and we worked before you, laboring night and day so that we would not be a burden to the church, but a blessing to the church. And with these words in verse 8, Paul is making a sharp contrast between the idol and his life. This is how you're to work. And then in verse 9, he talks about his will. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example, and there's the word again, to imitate. Paul plainly taught over and over that the church should support the leaders of the church. His most extensive instruction on that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 3 to 14. But this is what he wrote in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 6. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. The church is to care for the teachers and leaders. 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, double pay, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So he's not saying that the church shouldn't care for the leaders. In fact, while he was in Thessalonica, the church at Philippi supported him twice in his ministry. But what he's saying to the church is, I voluntarily withdrew myself from your support to give you an example of what it means to work hard and live the Christian life so that you would imitate me, so that you would follow me, so that you would mime my way of life. Command, this is how you're to live. You want to see that command played out? Look at my example. Look at my way of living. And I wonder this morning, if someone were to mimic you or to mimic me, if we would be pleased with the example that we see in their mime. Or I wonder if there would be things that would come out that we wish we would change. Parents, grandparents, do you realize how much your children and your grandchildren are mimicking you? Grandparents, do you understand the power of influence? that you have in your grandchildren's lives? Do you really understand that? Parents, do you understand that your children will follow more what you do than what you say? An example of the Christian life. Elders, deacons, leaders in the church have you considered the example that you're setting before the flock? And if the flock were to follow your example, what kind of church would you have? Oh, there's a danger of undisciplined Christian living in the church. And so we see his command and we see his example in verse number 10 and we see his principle. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Paul's words here in response to the Christians in Thessalonica are rooted in the Old Testament. 
Because his theology of work and vocation begins with the story of creation. And friends, that's where the doctrine of work and vocation always begins. In creation. And the Bible teaches us in Genesis chapter 1 verses 27 to 31 that God created all of the world and he called everything that he created good. And he called Adam and placed him into the garden and called him to work and to manage his creation. And so work is not a result of sin. Work is a result of God's creation. And entrusting the people that he created to manage it. Sin does not come into work until Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, God says that because sin has now entered the world, man will work, and man will work by the sweat of his brow, and man will have to deal with thorns. Thank you, Adam. Right? And so work is actually a good thing established by God. And Paul says in verse 10 that if a man is not willing to work, he shouldn't eat is literally what the text says. Now you'll notice what he says in verse 10. Look carefully. If anyone is not willing to work, he doesn't say if anyone is not able to work. It's a question of willingness, not a question of ability. Because the Bible is clear on that. When a brother or sister in Christ cannot work, the church is to care for them. The church is to provide for them. The church is to meet those needs. Look at the text. Is not willing. It literally means wills not to work. It is a deliberate choice. It is a conscious decision on their part not to work. And the implication in the text, just so you understand what, what's happening in the text properly, is that it wasn't that these church members couldn't work. It was that they were unwilling to work. They were perfectly capable of supporting themselves, but they refused to accept that responsibility. And instead of contributing to the health and to the life of the congregation, these members chose to remain lazy and undisciplined. They were not living in line with God's word. Instead, they were living outside of God's word, which is living in sin. It wasn't simply that they were not working, they had disrupted the image for an unbelieving world of how a Christian should live. So you know what Paul's telling the church in all of this passage? He was telling these sinful church members to get back in line with God's order and God's word because the central purpose of the church is to demonstrate the way life is to be lived under God. But they were refusing to do that. And their life had created disorder in their church and their life had created disorder in the image to the world of what it means to be a Christian. So Paul is telling the church and he's telling us that the character of our lives as Christians should be a strong work ethic rooted in creation and rooted in the gospel with an understanding that every single thing we do in our life is an act of worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. That that 
is the Christian life. That when you change a diaper, you change it for the glory of God. That when you wipe a runny nose, it is for the glory of God. When you fix that thing that is broken for the hundredth time, you fix it for the glory of God. When you exercise patience in your office over the same thing that you've had to exercise patience over, over and over and over again, you do it to the glory of God as an act of worship. This is the Christian life. That's what he's teaching the church. That's what he's teaching you and me. And I don't know about you, but I need that reminder weekly. So do you realize, brothers and sisters, the importance of the character of our lives? Do you realize that we're living for the glory and the fame of God and His name among an unbelieving world? Well, we see His command and His example and His principle. And finally, in verses 11 and 12, we see Paul's counsel. He says, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Notice what he says at the beginning of verse 11. We hear it's present tense. It's continual action. It means that Paul has heard over and over and over again about this problem in the church that needs addressed. And you'll notice there's a string of present participles in verse 11 that illustrate the persistence of the nature of the problem in the church. Paul and his companions heard that certain believers were leading an undisciplined life there in verse 11. They were doing no work at all, and they were acting like busybodies. There's a progression. Do you see the progression in the text? It all begins by removing the disciplines of your life. And then when the disciplines of your life are removed, you become idle and you don't do anything. And then when you become idle, look what happens. It leads to a greater sin. You become a busybody in the church. Not only are you not being productive in the church, but now you're disrupting the church. A progression of sin. And do you understand, friends, that's what sin does. Sin plays for keeps. It's never satisfied with the amount of you it has. It always wants more. It always wants more. That's why men have such a difficult time getting rid of pornography. Because pornography is never satisfied with how much of your soul it has. It wants it all. And you can put in this text... It's in the context of undisciplined living and idleness. And you can put in this text any sin that you want and you'll see the same progression. When sin is left unchecked, it takes over. It takes over. So they're not busy at work, but what are they? They're busy bodies. Do you know how Paul described them in 1 Thessalonians, or excuse me, 1 Timothy 5, 13? He says they learn to be idlers. They go about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. Do you see the progression? Idleness leads to gossip. 
Gossip leads to being a busybody, and that literally means messing around in business that is no concern to you. And it leads to disruption in the church because you say things that you should never, ever say. The progression of undisciplined living, the progression of sin. It's one thing to be out of line. According to God's word, it's an entirely different matter when you become a distraction and a problem to the entire church. And that's what he is saying in this passage of Scripture. And I'll tell you my experience of being in ministry for about 28 years. It's always those who have removed themselves from the life of the church. It is always those who are not busy about serving the Lord that get caught up in gossip and busybodiness and saying things that they should never say about people who are doing all the work and causing trouble in the church. And I think the text proves that point. So the undisciplined were an irritant. They were creating disunity and discord in the church. And Paul commands them. And he encourages them. Do you, do you hear it? It's a command. It's tough. It's strong. This is what you got to do. And then it's love. And I'm encouraging you to do it. It's a pastor's heart. Telling the truth with courage and conviction. And shepherding in love and encouragement. And this is what you need to do. You need to get busy working and be quiet and live a quiet, godly life before the church and before the world. Do you know what it literally is? It's repentance. You're in sin. Do the opposite of what you're doing and repent. You're going around house to house. You're talking to everybody. You're stirring up controversy in the church. You're dividing the church. The answer to your sin is to be quiet. You're sitting still. You're not doing anything. Everybody else is working around you. The answer to your sin is to get busy and to live your life before the church and to live your life before the world. Do you know what Paul is doing in verse number 12? Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness and keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's what he was doing. He was sending them a lifeline. And he's sending that lifeline to you. He's sending it to me. And he's asking you and me to send it to anybody else that we know needs this lifeline. It's his counsel to his church. And so, Christian, as the world moves into further and further decline, do you understand that the answer and the response to this decline and the return of Christ is not by removing the disciplines of your life, it's not by just coasting. It's not by just giving up. The solution, the answer to what's happening in the world around us is to be more disciplined, to be more leaning into God and to his word and to the things of his kingdom and allowing those disciplines to produce zeal and passion and courage and conviction in your life. To continue to live what you know is true and right, even if you were the only one, that is the answer to the problem. 
It's not to remove the restraints. It's to lean in more and to live a life. A life that the text says that we should live that is opposite of the world. Not a flashy life. Not a life that gathers all of this attention and renown. A life of what Seth read from 2 Timothy chapter 2. A life of plodding. A life of being the farmer. A life of being the soldier. A life of being the athlete. Of getting up every day and doing the daily disciplines of walking in God. And pursuing godliness and the things of his kingdom. And living a quiet, noble, godly life for the glory of his name around everyone around you. That's the answer. The answer is to stay disciplined, not to remove them, not to give up. That's why the Bible says, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold of eternal life. Endure suffering. It's a life of discipline. It's a life of passion. It's a life of running with the finish line in sight and just plodding along and being the turtle and being the turtle every single day. It's not seeing how fast you can get there. It's being faithful in it. That's it. I'll close with this. There's, there's been about three or four seasons in my life as your pastor over the last 18 and a half years where I'm describing what I went through, what Martin Lloyd-Jones describes, a spiritual dis- depression, a, a discouragement in the soul that was dark and dry and draining. That's how I felt. You say, well, what did you do? Did you give up? Well, last I checked, I'm still here. So no, I didn't give up. What did you do? I got up. I got alone with God before my Bible, and my prayer books, and the other books that I was reading. And I would read and pray. And I would read and pray. And then I would get cleaned up, and I would go to work. And what would you do there? Well, I would get in my office alone with God and get my Bible and my commentaries and all my stuff out, and I would study to feed the people of God. Well, what did you do after that? I went to the hospital. Well, what did you do after that? I went to people's homes. Well, what did you do after that? Meeting after meeting after meeting. Well, did you feel better? No, I actually felt worse most days. So what did you do the next day? I got up and did the same thing again. Well, when, when you did that and you were spending time with God and you were doing those disciplines, didn't you feel better? No. Most days I closed my Bible for a season. It's like, well, that, that didn't help me emotionally today. That didn't replenish me today. But then, you know what? One day I would get up and I would sit down and I would read it. And you know what? Every word on the page just came alive and it was like it was for me. And then my head started to get a little clearer and the sun started to look a little brighter. And... The hospital visits were easier to do, and the meetings didn't seem to be such of a drudgery. Well, what are you saying? It was through the disciplines. It was through the plotting. It was through the faithfulness of everyday activities that are not flashy, 
that don't draw attention to anybody, that God used those disciplines to heal me, to restore me, to refresh me. That's why David would say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He restores me. He leads me. He guides me. And ultimately, he'll lead me home. And it was the disciplines. It was the disciplines. Not casting off restraints, but leaning in more. It was the disciplines that got me through. There is a danger and removing those disciplines. And you've seen it in the text this morning. And I'm about as confident as I'm standing on this platform that God has used it in lives. His Spirit's here. He's using His Word. Do you know what the answer is to that? Surrender. That's it. And there's some who need to surrender their life to Christ because their sins are not forgiven. You're separated from God. And you have no hope. And you know it's true. Christ died for you, friend. And you've deceived yourself thinking you're right and you know you're not. And you need to come to Christ today. If you will turn from your sin and call on his name, he will save you. Right where you're seated this morning. And there's some who'd have to say, I'm I'm idle, pastor. I am idle. I'm just coasting. I'm just going through the motions. You have to say, "Is, is that how you want to live when Jesus comes back? Is that how you want him to find you, friend? I don't know what else to tell you today. Is that how you want to be? I think you'll regret it on that day. I really do. I think you'll regret it. And so you need to repent and turn from your idleness today and lean in. And there's some today, I know it, I know it, I know it, I know it. You're so discouraged in your soul just like I've been. Everything's dark, everything's a drudgery. You've removed discipline from your life. You're thinking because you don't feel a certain way, there's no point in pursuing God and his word and pursuing time with him and pursuing the church and pursuing relationships and you're just on an island to yourself. And what I want to say to you as a fellow person who's walked in the dark, the island will never help you. You need to come into the community. You need to re-engage the disciplines. Surrender to him. Let's pray. Oh God.